0: You, 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 you know the the S E A. You the the S E A. a, I be, I be a, a
1: hello and welcome to episode 285 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Polly Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton.
2: And I'm Tristan Carcino.
1: And we are coming to you in different locations. I'm in Seattle, Washington. Home of the Kraken! And- oh,
2: hello! Was not expecting that. I'm coming to you from Washington, home of Alex Bannister on the Alex Bannister edition of the Pelton cast.
1: <laughs> uh, there you go. The Alex Bannister edition for real. We want the ball and we're going to score. Oh, I did. I didn't even put in here. That is a toast. Going to need to do that on the fly uh, because we are coming to you in different locations this week. Uh, we do. We are not having the same beer. And I couldn't save this for a good reason, because it's the Stone Enjoy by 1031 Hazy IPA. Are you kidding me? I'm going to have to finish this entire 22-ounce bottle by myself here.
2: Drink up, motherfucker. But you're like, (laughs) A, uh, let's just record virtually. And then B, you've got a Stone Enjoy by October 31st, and I don't? I mean, I, was, I didn't
1: realize that we were going to record virtually this week. It, it just kind of happened that way. You
2: told me we were going to record virtually. It wasn't my decision. That's like me going to a Kraken game and you not going to one. Oh,
1: we're going to get to that in a second here. But the uh, Stone Enjoy by 103121 Hazy IPA, not technically a fresh hop IPA, but the whole idea is to drink it fresh, yeah. is here to haunt your beer fridge with a hazy look and a heavy helping. Of citrate, mosaic, amarillo, and Nelson Savant hops. But the refreshing dryness and huge tropical fruit flavors in this double IPA are nothing to be afraid of. The only thing that would be truly be terrifying is missing out on this frighteningly fresh creation, which is what you were experiencing. Let me tell you, it's got a strong bite to
2: it. It doesn't. That's the Nelson Savant hops. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what those <laughs> Nelson Cruz. We've talked about this before, but you know there are Pelton Hops out there. Hello. You know, sometimes a year, those are pretty fresh hops. Oh, sometimes they kind of stale.
1: Oh, uh, All right, to our toast. We'll start off with the one we're adding on the fly, which is to Matt Hasselbeck. There we go. On being inducted into the Seahawks Ring of Honor on Monday night during the, uh, the Seahawks loss to the New Orleans Saints.
2: Alex Bannister still waiting.
1: Any day now, any day now, it's going to be Holmgren, Hasselbeck, Bannister. Or I guess flip flip Hasselbeck and Holmgren because he's going in next Sunday against Jacksonville. We'll toast to that then. Mike Holmgren's going in
2: next Sunday? He is. Wow. It's yeah. a barrage.
1: Two in seven days. All right, next
2: up. Well, two. Well, <laughs> oh. we'll see if I make it by the Lions game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> two, Ken Griffey Jr., for joining go. the Mariners ownership group, uh, buying a minority stake to go along with the one he already had in Sounders FC and uh, build the statue is all I can say
2: here. It's done. <laughs> oh, good. We already
1: managed that one.
2: The statue's built, finally. Well, uh, what if was... the
1: Mariners finally make the playoffs once Groffy joins the ownership
2: group? Like a, as a cleansing experience? Yeah. Uh, he was at the Seahawks game on Monday night
1: makes sense looks
2: quite old (laughs) wow that was your analysis he really does look owning the mariners has aged ken griffey jr (laughs) i think he might age 20 30 years right oh tough break that that painting in the attic got real aged when he took over the marinership group all right
1: four former sonics players were among the 75 named to the nba's 75, 75 75th anniversary team easy for you to say uh, Ray Allen. I just said the Ke-
2: word Marinership group. So
1: <laughs> Kevin Durant, Gary Payton, and Lenny Wilkins—all guards on that list. Yeah, well, Durant Durant was a guard in Seattle, so
2: it does actually <laughs> check out. He's a PJ Carlisimo guard.
1: <laughs> uh, GP was among the many legends here on Saturday night for the Kraken's first game at Climate Pledge Arena. So that was cool to see.
2: That first game might have aged him, too. Uh, So you said Ray (laughs) Allen, Kevin Durant, shooting guard Kevin Durant, uh, (laughs) NBA champion Lenny Wilkins, and Gary Payne? Yep. All right.
1: I mean, it checks out. Those are the the four players you'd expect.
2: Sean Kemp was robbed. Fair. Literally, Uh, literally, there is no NBA if Sean Kemp doesn't exist. The 90s do not happen. I've seen some YouTube clips to prove that point.
1: He was a key figure. In the 90s without question he also was at saturday night's crack and opener among the many many celebrities there sue bird obviously russell wilson dk metcalf bobby wagner it was a, a great showing for the seattle sports community on a big night
2: uh-huh. and a lot of great showings for the seattle sports community after oh that.
1: no not on the not on the field necessarily <laughs> but on the ice on tuesday <laughs> Uh, congrats to UW softball coach Heather Tarr, who was named to the same role with the U S women's national softball team for the upcoming 2022 campaign. She previously served as an assistant to Ken Erickson, including during the 2020 Olympics when the U S lost the gold medal game to host Japan. And will add those duties to hers with UW softball.
2: Okay. So sticking with UW though.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is a situation. It's like, you know, Greg Popovich coaching the, men's national team or don staley the women's national team not something you leave your job for okay all right and lastly congrats to storm coach Noel quinn who was honored as part of the ucla hall of fame class on saturday so a nice honor for Noel quinn uh super was trying to shout out Noel quinn for that on the manning cast on monday night but was was unable to get that out
2: wow what happened too much arch manning talk they just they just they just changed the subject they would not let that happen. <laughs> uh,
1: should we just get into talking about the Kraken here at the top? I feel like that's the, the most important, obviously the most important thing that happened in the last week is opening a new arena. That doesn't happen all the time. Uh, and the Kraken playing their first game at said arena on Saturday night. And then their second game on Tuesday with you, the likes of you in attendance. And I mean, it was one thing that I I was out of town And didn't get to go to the Kraken's home opener inaugural game. But for you to go to a game before me, to go to Climate Pledge Arena before me,
2: I am I am pissed. Lay's Habs. You can lay's Habs D's nuts. That W over Montreal, right? One of the original six franchises. How about the newest franchise? in the NHL and a five to one victory, pathetic an embarrassing performance. Maybe try speaking English. <laughs> wow. did not see that day
1: coming. So Man. before the game, you missed this because you were, you were like, getting there. They raised a banner celebrating the 17. Oh no, 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 no Macklemore no banners to be found. Yeah. I mean, I mean, technically, if we're considering this in the arena, his record of having the most sold-out shows at Key Arena does not carry over to Climate Pledge Arena. So it doesn't make, it makes sense that it would not be in the rafters there. We just need to figure out where that batter went.
2: I'm going to talk to Macklemore's agents.
1: Good. Yeah, definitely. All he that. needs
2: is two to have the most sold-out shows. That's
1: correct. I mean, right? he's got a good chance. I'm not saying he can't do it. I'm just saying he, he doesn't the currently best year. I
2: don't even—Coldplay, that show must have sold out, right? I assume. One would think. Okay, well, all you need is you just gotta best Coldplay. It can't be that no, hard. Oh, I
1: agree. I'm, I'm,
2: I'm with Every you time any artist sells out Arena more or Climate Pledge Arena, whatever we're calling it, anytime Blood any artist Pledge. sells out Climate Pledge Arena more, Macklemore needs to come back and do it. It's like, like Gordy Howe playing another decade. Like just tack it on. How <laughs> we really get into the hockey references?
1: now? I mean Billy Joel just like keeps playing sold out shows at Madison Square Garden too. Oh. To put the record out of reach, right? Does he? Yeah, oh yeah, that's definitely a thing. I I think think L C D Sound System announced
2: 36 straight shows there. No, I think they're playing Brooklyn Steel. They're playing Brooklyn Steel for like 25 straight days. You know, maybe Is there a
1: Billy Joel banner? Yes, there is. There really is a
2: Billy Joel banner. You're damned right there is. God. Call me when you write scenes from an Italian restaurant. L C D Sound System. Thank you. (laughs) Uh,
1: yeah. So, what was the experience like of the the newer? Well, I guess I didn't actually get to explain what it was. So, it was for the 1917 <laughs> Stanley Cup champion Seattle Metro. We were pretty busy
2: talking about Macklemore. <laughs> oh, yeah, we got to,
1: we got sidetracked. The 1917 we Stanley can hardly Cup even Cup.
2: recognize this championship from 105 years ago. <laughs> the
1: first American champions of the Stanley Cup.
2: It was called the Stanley Cup at the time. Is that correct? It was okay. the Stanley
1: Cup predates the existence of the NHL and said original six. Uh, so it was like rival leagues played each other, like the World Series way back in the day, or the AFL and NFL meeting in the Super Bowl. Uh, they beat the Canadians in the in the Stanley Cup Finals <laughs> and then whack. played played them again in 1919. A, a series that was canceled due to the Spanish flu
2: pandemic. Wow, the same thing happened with Super Bowl 49. <laughs>
1: yeah, not, not not exactly the same. It was it was actually much more tragic in, in nineteen nineteen <laughs> as it as it turned out.
2: Yeah, good thing nothing similar to that will ever happen again.
1: Well, uh, very very uh, unusual coincidence for the the two Seattle games against the Canadians, hundred plus years <laughs> apart to both have fans wearing masks due to a pandemic.
2: Many many are oh. noting the similarities between these two games
1: uh okay so with that in mind tell us about the arena i'm i'm so curious it's incredible
2: i truly have to say there's nobody who went into this experience with lower expectations than me and wow walking inside of that arena right i've been to kirina maybe i don't want to say thousands of times i've been to kirina hundreds of times right Yes. And the feeling is still very much the same. Like, the best part about Key Arena vis-a-vis any other basketball arena, basically in the entire country, was just how small it felt, right? How homey it feels. You feel like you're on top of the action. And you feel like there's no bad seats in the arena. Granted, I sat in very good seats for this hockey game. The whole arena, like, you're sitting in the lower bowl at the Rose Garden. I sat next to fucking... Uh, 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 Sam Presti. Sam Presti. I... Intentionally, forgot his name. Sat next to Sam Presti in very good seats at the Rose Garden. They are drastically different spaces to watch a sporting event. And it is incredible how they managed to fit that many seats into that small of a space and make it feel just so quaint in a way. Like, you look around and you're like, this can't be more than 8,000 people here. You know, like, the way that the seats are structured, it is incredible. And you can still feel the bones of Arena, but, like, the way that they built out the seats there is it feels like you're on top of the action no matter where you're at. Like, you can look to the farthest seats in the house, and it looks closer than they looked at Arena. Really?
1: That's interesting. I mean, that that makes me excited from a Storm perspective, because I think one of my concerns about this is... You know, a bigger arena sometimes is not a great thing in the WNBA because you you know, it can feel kinda empty if you've got too many seats in there, but which Key Arena never did. But it, it is sounds the like this is not the exact
2: opposite of cavernous. Wow. And like you walk through the corridors. I mean, it's interesting, like you walk in and you're right that there. there's no, you know, you for people who have been to Key Arena, like the front steps into Key Arena, no matter which side you are on, you walk down like a large corridor of stairs, right? Unless and there was one
1: entrance that you walked directly into the 200 level. The 200
2: level. But, like, to get to the 100 level, you would go down a long set of stairs, and now you basically walk straight in. There's a level below, right, and that's sort of where the 100 level is. The stairs are just inside. It's not that different of a structure. Like, you know, they already, because of where the roof lived, you're sort of limited by space. And I think that, that Correct. those limitations really helped the build out of this arena. I think there are ways that this arena could have really been fucked up. And I think if they would have started brand new, it might have felt gaudy or it might have felt cavernous. But instead, because of those limitations, the team will probably move within the next 20 years. <laughs> no, like, but, but, but because of those limitations, it meant that they had to do it in such a homey feel. Like, you really feel like every person in the arena is right there with you and I, I think it's a pretty incredible feat that they've accomplished and again i went into this not with no expectations whatsoever and just seeing how they structured it the light of the arena how they how they uh, used the windows that are there like how they used the the you know built in roof like everything about it was done exactly perfectly in a lot of ways, it's like you walk the corridors; they feel almost sparse to a certain extent. There's not a ton going on inside of the arena, and it's just like it is. Oh god, I'm trying to think of what the word that I'm looking for here is. Um, oh, there's like a lifestyle blog or whatever, but like it, it feels very modern in every way. Like this is a Pacific Northwest arena, and almost could not exist almost anywhere else.
1: I mean, that's that's cool to hear that it it has sort of a Seattle feel to it. And I I agree with the natural light. I mean, that is one of my favorite things about Heck Ed that you've got the windows at the, uh, what is that the West end of Heck Ed. And uh, I've only been to a few games at Memorial Coliseum in Portland. They played a preseason game there for the Blazers a few years ago that I went to. And then when they used it during the PK 80 tournament, when they had games going on both at Moda Center and in Memorial Coliseum, and that was something I really liked, and it made, it reminded me of the old Colosseum. And in some ways, the fact that you've got the natural light and can see the outside, it, it seems like, without having been in there myself, there's a little more of a Colosseum feel, even though it's way larger, than a Key Arena feel, because Key Arena was just so concrete.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: I'm assuming there's not as much concrete
2: involved at Climate Fledge, thankfully. They, they did a very good job on this one, I will say.
1: <clears throat> I can't wait. Uh, I don't know when the first time will be. I the only I don't have anything planned until I. I for sure will do the uh, battle in Seattle when when Gonzaga plays there. But uh, at some point I got to check it out because it, it's very exciting. Uh, what, what were your takeaways from the game itself?
2: Kraken are phenomenal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it was interesting. So they scored a goal pretty much immediately within the first two minutes, and then the were you even can- in the building yet. I was, like, just walking in when they scored that. I oh, heard God. the screams or whatever, and I was like. I,
1: <laughs> like, I turned it on. on I was on my second screen because I was watching the NBA, of course. But uh, I turned it on, like, 7-10 and was like, wait, they started? Wait, the Kraken scored a goal?
2: I was busy. I was in the rafters. Uh, I was asking, asking the hard questions. <laughs> About the McElmore banner, yes. Seeing where it was. Not a lot of answers. But heard that goal when I was walking in. And then the Canadians came back and scored a goal fairly within the first period. And I was like, okay, this is going to be a back and forth game. And then the Kraken kind of just turned it on. I mean, Tanev scored that goal to make it 2-1. And from that point forward, they really dominated the run of play. It was clear, like, the Canadians are probably the worst team that they've played so far. I mean, they they were very
1: good last year, but they are struggling at this point.
2: I think they were 1-4-1 and heading into the game. That sounds right. And... Uh, The Kraken really controlled the game for much of the second and third periods until it was basically over, you know? So, like, it was the first ever game that the Kraken have played where they've really dominated an opponent. And you talk about your run differential, right? Like, the point differential from this one is huge. Getting a four-point point differential, only giving up one goal, like, they went out and they didn't just beat the Canadians in their second ever home game, something they probably should have done against the Canucks on Saturday night in the home opener and weren't able to do. But holding the throttle down, getting to those five goals and just completely eliminating the Canadians from this game. There was no conversation for the basically the entire third period.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Would you describe yourself as a lifelong Brandon Tanev fan?
2: Absolutely, I would. Love (laughs) Brandon Tanev. (laughs) Imagine thinking, like, even five months ago that you would have takes on hockey players. He's he's the heart and soul of the team. He is definitely, he's easily, like, the fan's favorite player. I think we all sort of were force-fed Grubauer, which is not bad, like, but a goalie is just, the idea of being a huge fan of a goalie is, like, it's not as exciting. I, They're I not agree. you're not gonna do as much. Like a great save is never gonna be as exciting as scoring goals.
1: But you did get it on, on the groove chant, right? There,
2: a little there was not a lot of grooming happening.
1: Wow, there was a lot of lot of it in the opener, I felt like.
2: Well, there wasn't a lot else to cheer for in the opener.
1: Well I mean they did lead much of the game in the opener. If we want to shift to talking about that one. Uh led one nothing, got the first goal. It, at the uh, at the arena and then 2-1 but surrendered twice in the third period before an empty netter produced the final margin of 4-2 for the hated rival vancouver mm-hmm. canucks uh is a bo horvath power play goal even the score two and connor garland scored the game winner a little over three minutes later really against the run of play uh Kraken outshot the Canucks 31 26 in that one, but just didn't have the finishing that uh, Vancouver did. Both goals coming from defensemen in that one.
2: Interesting, and I and I think that's something that was encouraging about this victory over the Canadians was the finishing. You know, there were plays that they should have finished, and they did, and I think that's important. Yep. Very important,
1: and to just get that production from the front line. You saw Yanni Gord get his first goal with the Kraken, which was exciting. So. uh a positive indicator is they continue this homestand the rest of the week on Thursday. Minnesota comes to town Sunday. It's the New York Rangers, uh, another one of those original six teams. And then Monday, uh, the, a back-to-back as they travel to Edmonton going back on the road. So uh, uh, Kraken will, will continue with more opportunities at Climate Pledge Arena in this
2: upcoming week. All right. Well, to end the podcast on a positive note, thanks for listening. <laughs>
1: Oh no, oh no! We go well. We got to do the rest of it. Should we talk about uh, my trip last weekend? The reason I wasn't at the Kraken's
2: open Air. All right. So I was in Nashville. It'd be a lot better than talking about the football. It it will be, or
1: the football, depending on the uh, the situation here. Uh, so I was in I was in Nashville, and obviously in Nashville, we're in the midst of our search for Seattle's best fried chicken. I had to try some authentic Nashville hot chicken. Okay, uh, we've had Hattie B's. We've had that in Vegas at the Block Twenty Four Food Hall at the Cosmopolitan. Uh, so I wanted to go to the originator, the the original spot for Nashville hot chicken, Prince's Hot Chicken, which is not in its original location. It's moved around a couple of times. They definitely had, think, called
2: Block Sixteen.
1: Did I call it Block Twenty Four?
2: Yeah, you're just adding. Uh... <laughs> Well, they what, should be new, honoring. New worlds of eight is that what it is? They should be honoring Ken Griffey Jr. Really,
1: <laughs> Mike Flowers. Come on, what are we doing here?
2: Uh, so on Saturday, that's Mariners owner Ken Griffey Jr. To you, thank you.
1: So they have a location of Prince's downtown that was very lowly rated on Google, and I was like, no, I needed to go to the one that's like deep in the suburbs. That seems like the much more authentic experience. And there was when it like two o'clock on Saturday afternoon and still a pretty good crowd line outside the door to order chicken. And it was like a 40 minute wait, which was well worth it. Obviously, I would say even more so than getting cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. In this case, it felt like I was getting something different than the hot chicken I've had before. Really? It's at Sisters and Brothers here or Addie B's in Vegas, where there was just kind of a depth of flavor. Now, obviously, I went mild because i oh, just, i did, could, could not risk it. You're I mean,
2: in fucking Nashville. You've got to do the hot.
1: It's still considerably still considerably hot. How hot how hot was the mild? I mean it it's probably not that different from the mild. It's like heat-wise it's probably not that different from the mild. It's sisters and brothers, I would say. Okay. It's a, but just really delicious. I did the uh did the uh dark meat combo naturally. The thigh and the leg.
2: I need more than this, though. How was it? Like, how was the flavor? How would it rate in Seattle?
1: I I think yeah, it would definitely crack our semifinals in Seattle. Was my assessment. It's a little tough to say because we haven't haven't gotten back to cookies. Someday we will <laughs> and continue our search for Seattle's best fried chicken, and.
2: So I don't You I couldn't don't even know. do the medium. The flavors are plain, light mild, mild, medium, hot, X hot, XX hot, and triple X hot.
1: No. I, I felt like the
2: mild was as far as I could go. There's I mean, eight different escalating flavors, which is kind of wild. And you chose you a, a three out options. of eight? You couldn't even get to a four.
1: I mean I was gonna be on a party bus later that evening. I just like, you know, there's certain considerations here. Fair just enough.
2: Sad. I love the idea of you just like sweating, pouring sweat, or whatever. It wasn't that bad in that regard. Yeah, because you had the mild. Of course, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it's still hot. Wow, triple X hot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what Danny Chow got when he went there. I definitely wouldn't reread
2: his story. He on got the triple X hot, hot. I think so. He had just had to do the hottest. Yeah. Oh my God. It would, and he, I feel like a dead like So
1: I was like, I can do it one time during this trip. And right during the middle of this trip, Danny got it every single day he was there, I think, at different locations. Freaking wild. Oh, yeah.
2: Triple X hot.
1: That's an incredible story.
2: I think I would go with the hot, just straight up hot. Wow. That is uh, that
1: is an aggressive move.
2: How, how often are you going to be in Nashville? It's true. I've never right? been to Nashville before. Yeah. It's like, if I go to Montreal, I'm going to drink a Molson. And... <laughs> That's the first thing you think of with Montreal? Absolutely.
1: It's not bagels? It's not poutine? Bagels?
2: I think they have poutine at the arena, by the way. I saw somebody walk in with fries that were definitely covered in something.
1: I, I mean, it would make sense if they do. They have it at the arena in Vancouver,
2: but I never have gotten it there. If I go to Montreal, I'm going to have a Molson. And if I go to Nashville, I'm going to have hot chicken. I don't go to the hot chicken place and get a mild chicken.
1: All right. Well, I look forward to hearing about your experience
2: if that happens.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, It was an exciting pilgrimage to, at that point, the only place the Kraken had won a game at Bridgestone Uh, Arena in downtown Nashville.
2: Now you can make a pilgrimage to Seattle, Washington. Yeah.
1: It may be a while after I get to Nashville that I get to to, to Queen Anne. All right, let's get back to Seattle sports and start with the Sounders, who had a 1-1 draw Wednesday at the Colorado Rapids, then a 2-1 loss at home Saturday against Sporting Kansas City and a 3-0 loss Tuesday against
2: LAFC on the road. They lost 3-0? Who played in this match? I mean,
1: some of the I've I've been too busy watching hockey. Yeah, yeah. I was back and toggling back and forth between the Sounders and the Kraken. Uh, let's start Wednesday, where they rallied for a draw in a hard-fought match at altitude. Colorado took the lead in the 66th minute, but the Sounders found the equalizer on a strong run up the left wing by Leo Chu to send a ball across the front of the goal that Christian Roldan redirected home in the middle of a crowd. Another goal for Roldan, who's been busy scoring goals lately uh, against his reputation. So that was a great point to get on the road. Back home on Saturday, Sounders went behind early in the 4th minute, but the uh the, the moment of the match came with Kansas City still leading 1-0 in the 54th minute when goalkeeper Tim Melia body slammed Christian Roldan. Well, it apparently should not have been a penalty. The widespread agreement from pretty much anyone paying, who knows the rules paying attention to this was that was an obvious red card. Instead, Melia or only You said only 8-0. while it
2: should not have been a penalty,
1: Apparently, because play was stopped, I guess
2: it definitely should have. It should not have been a penalty, but it should have been a red card. Yes, okay,
1: which would have forced Colorado to some or Kansas City, I should say, to uh, substitute someone else off so that they had a keeper and play with ten men for forty six minutes, which would have, or thirty six minutes, which would have been a huge problem.
2: It was maybe the most aggressive play I've ever seen in soccer. <laughs> right, I mean, like it's just like you. It's like he ha- had
1: temporarily lost, you know, any ability to reason to make that play. Like, it's like Zidane headbutting
2: Materazzi. It's pretty, I mean, that's like the scale of what we're talking about, though. Like, if you saw that in a World Cup match, you would think that is instantly, like, one of the most notable plays you'd seen in a World Cup match. And yeah. you'd be like, that player was obviously kicked out for this. How he managed not to get a red card... For that takedown, like, it it was beyond the level of, uh, nowhere near a soccer play in any way, right? It's all physicality and just a straight-up wrestling move.
1: Yeah. I mean, and we still have not heard any punishment from MLS for Uh They've got some time on that as they're not playing currently, but I think they actually, they probably are playing Wednesday, so... I very perplexing on every level what's going on Did
2: they review this? Did they go to the review and still decide that there was no red card here? I think so,
1: but I'm not totally clear on that. Wow! So you weren't watching at that point?
2: No, I wasn't. I've seen the replays of this, but it's shocking to see, and that that it wasn't a red card, where it's just like, uh, you look at it and you're like, oh my god, I can't believe what I just saw here. And it's so it's so far outside of just normal soccer, I think, is the main thing. You know, like if you saw that in exactly in, if you saw that in football, you'd be like, oh, wow. But like it would still be pretty a pretty surprising play in another sport. But in soccer in particular, it is just it's a complete non-soccer move.
1: I mean, it would be a very surprising move in basketball.
2: You would uh, probably so- get ejected.
1: Yeah, you'd get suspended for a very long time. Sound you think still... so? You think oh, you'd yeah.
2: get suspended for a long time for a body slam? Well, I mean, also,
1: it's much worse if you're body slamming someone on hardwood than on artificial turf.
2: You don't agree with that? I do agree with that. I'm just saying I still think okay. it's a negative thing.
1: Yeah, no, I, I just, I'm not saying it needs to be. That. I'm just saying it's even would it be even worse in basketball. Uh, Sounders did still equalize four minutes later through Joao Paulo, but the visitors got the winner in the 79th minute on Monday night or on Tuesday night. The unusual Tuesday night match at LAFC Sounders played without Joao Paulo due to a yellow card accumulation suspension and pretty much completely outclassed in this one. Uh, the only highlight was Nico Ladero making his return five weeks after knee surgery to play the twenty final 25 minutes off the bench. So the result of this stretch, Sounders still up three points on Sporting Kansas City and Colorado, but now with just two matches remaining to three for Colorado and four for Kansas City. 538 Soccer Power Index has the odds of the Sounders finishing first down to 39% with Sporting Kansas City now the favorite, and they badly need three points. In their home finale versus the LA Galaxy next week on Monday Night Football, Uh, LA in a battle for playoff positioning currently tied for fourth in the West with the Portland Timbers, so going to be a lot at stake on that one next Monday night. Uh, Ol Reign had the weekend off due to the international break. Megan Rapinoe, among others, playing for the U.S. Women's National Team this weekend. Carly Lloyd's send off her retirement from international soccer. So, uh, uh, you know, an exciting stretch of exhibitions here. But they'll be back at it to close the NWSL regular season Saturday at again at Kansas City against a last place Kansas City team, needing only a point to secure second place and a bye to the NWSL semifinals uh kansas city can't avoid the seller at this point but has lost just four of 11 matches at home they play on a baseball stadium where uh sporting kansas city used to play before constructing their own stadium and we got news that uh the kansas city nwsl team is planning their own the first nwsl specific stadium they announced Mm. plans for that today but that won't open until 2024 uh they handed the rain a one nothing defeat at home back in august in the event that the Rain do lose Saturday, they can still finish second if Washington fails to win on Sunday's decision day and Gotham FC fails to win one of their two remaining matches Thursday and Sunday. But definitely best to just get get a result on Saturday and lock up second place and a bye. With that, let's turn our attention to football.
2: Well, I I want to say, when is U Dub soccer getting added to the rundown?
1: Well, UW soccer also had some controversial refereeing on Saturday. I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw this uh, the tweets about this to us.
2: Oh, I did.
1: Yeah, where uh, there was not a penalty given in their favor in a game, they ended up losing for the their first suffering their first loss of the 2021 season. They were number Friday. one in the
2: country, correct? Yes. This is number one in the country, and they can't even get on the rundown.
1: Lost 3-2 to Oregon State.
2: Uh, It was a pretty absurd red card that happened. Considering just what's happening in refereeing throughout soccer in general, like, that red card was uh, complete bunk.
1: They dropped to nine men with that. They had two players set off.
2: And and you know, State, if you think Pac-12 refereeing is bad in basketball, just imagine how it is in soccer. That's, a, that's an excellent point.
1: And Oregon State is a very good team, legitimately very good team, number eight in the country coming into that one. Uh, so Huskies, this weekend, a, uh, a pair of games. On the fly. I am. Thursday, they're hosting California, Sunday, Stanford.
2: And tell us about the Cal soccer team. <laughs> oh, you know, they probably have a lot of players.
0: <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Uh,
1: they're probably better than Cal's football team <laughs> this year. All right, let's talk about Utah football. A win on Friday that
2: kind of felt like a loss
1: <laughs> against Arizona. You
2: know what? Anybody who was watching also lost.
1: <laughs> oh,
2: well. We all lost that one.
1: Imagine you were staying up until one in the morning
2: central time to watch this one
1: by yourself in a hotel room in Nashville.
2: <laughs> Honestly, staying alone in a hotel room sounds phenomenal. So, Oh, yeah.
1: Alone in Nashville
2: is right up there with Alone in Charles. Alone in Nashville, I would take. I would have been fresh off some hot chicken, not mild chicken. I would have been fresh off some hot chicken. I would have been feeling it at that point. I would have been drinking. I don't know what you're drinking in Nashville. Whatever is local to Nashville. Quite a uh, variety
1: of different uh Yeehaw Brewing had a pretty cool spot. They've got like Say that again. Yeehaw.
2: Yeehaw Brewing? Yeehaw. Okay. Uh
1: they've got a they've got this location that we went to a couple. I went to a couple of times actually, I guess. The group of us <clears> went <throat> once, and then I watched the morning games there by myself on Sunday. Uh watched the text, the Titans take down the Chiefs, which was very exciting to ever, to most of the people in attendance because there's a lot of Chiefs fans there. Uh so it's them. And Old Smoky Distillery, and then also White Duck Tacos, uh, all have kind of combined forces for this giant location with indoor and outdoor seating, projector screens, pretty awesome setup. Like if we had a place like that in Seattle, it would be a great place to hang out.
2: Yeehaw! Uh, (laughs) Anyway, uh, being alone in a to go back to being alone in a hotel room that would just be. (laughs) Really nice.
1: <sighs> okay.
2: Well, we're going
1: to need to change subject off of that. <laughs> you can think about Just, the first the first half when I was watching it in a food hall in Nashville
2: with a couple of friends. A food hall?
1: Yeah.
2: Okay. Pretty nice what, spot. Watching football in the food hall. Well, uh, so I missed, I, I saw in person basically, I, I would say that most of the second half of this game. And... Saw the score at halftime of this one. I think it was thirteen nothing at the half. Is that right? Yeah, it sounds right. And I pivoted to full on like Joker mode, right? Like it's all Schadenfreude with this team. And I said to myself, "Let's just if you're going to be bad, let's be really bad." You don't get a draft pick in college football, but the draft pick you get is you can at least clear out this godforsaken. Let's for now say offensive coordinating staff. Uh, I won't go too far with the rest of it, and looking at it where it's like, if you're down 13, nothing to Arizona, there's a good chance. Maybe Jimmy, like we get a little bit closer to the, the being willing to consider Sam. He as the quarterback,
1: which is a reminder. Arizona had lost 18 consecutive games coming
2: into this one. It legitimately would have been a worse loss than Montana to a certain extent.
1: The line wasn't as high in this one, but I mean, 13, nothing. They never were, getting outclassed that badly against Montana, I guess I would say. They at least led a majority of the Montana game. Uh, Yeah. Uh, But then the second half, Dylan Morris to Terrell Bynum became a thing. A couple of long plays there. Uh, Dylan Morris ended up topping 10 yards per attempt for the first time this season in the second of his career. You get the huge interception from Tuli Lulit no I, I don't know if i can pronounce his name off the top of my head without seeing it in front of me but uh a huge interception on a screen pass when Arizona looked like they were going to you know at least score another field goal to make it a two possession game and end up winning this one twenty one sixteen.
2: 16 well and it's it's kind of interesting because you know we're so outcomes based when we talk about football and sports in general, right? Like, this is a thing where it would have been a train wreck for the entire program had they lost, and it's just a game that we ignore because they won. And the reality is, in the end, they probably played a better game than Arizona. They were probably the better team on the field. Uh, but even being this close, I think, is a pretty huge issue. You know, you look at the discrepancy in total yards, it's not that great, right? No. Like uh,
1: and allowing, I mean, Arizona had no passy attack whatsoever in this game. Thirteen of twenty-one for sixty-two yards. But even allowing a team as inept offensively as Arizona to run for two hundred and eighteen yards is troubling.
2: I think they really they gave themselves a week without criticism because of pulling off a victory against clearly the worst team in the Pac-12 for a couple of years. I don't know if it was without criticism,
1: without the hot glare of the spotlight, because also that that fell on a team that we're going to talk about in a minute here.
2: UW soccer. (laughs) Let us down. (laughs) Let us down. But, you know, it's kind of interesting. Again, I, I don't know if there's any credit that needs to be given here. I've given smidgens of credit to the UW coaching staff throughout this season. It does feel like There are times where you look at it and you say, Maybe John Donovan has figured something out. And But it's just there's never any consistency to it. It's
1: there's a moment of you think you've figured something out, whether it's the at snap motion in the second half against UCLA or throwing deep against this Arizona defense in the second half. And it just never carries over. Like, people are like, oh, maybe that can give some momentum. That can That's something to build on. And it's just not anything to build on. You start at square one the next week.
2: I mean, but seeing Trell Bynum with five catches for 143 yards and the two bombs that he completed, Dylan Morris can throw those passes. Like, this to me, in fact, I think the worst thing a football coach can do is not letting their quarterbacks throw. There is. I'm I've talked hard. to you about this before. There is too much of an aversion to turnovers in sports. A punt is a turnover. If we yep. classified it in the same way, if you classified it every single punt as a turnover, coaches would think differently about it. But yep. literally, because of that, we're going to call it analytics here. Because of analytics, that is that is not analytics, sir. No, I'm saying to to, to troll these fucking people because of something that they don't even want to think about. Right. They're so consumed with this idea of turnovers, a stat, that they are unwilling to throw the ball deep because they're scared of interceptions. And interceptions, ultimately, especially on deep throws, are not that big of a deal. And that's what I'm saying is like,
1: you think they are? No, I agree with all of this, but isn't this the same argument I advanced last week about Dylan Morris getting intercepted on his deep ball?
2: When you were giving him a smidgen of credit? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you on this. I I feel like you were disagreeing with me last week. No, my argument last week was that the season is over. Why are we not playing Sam What What is the point of not playing Sam Heward? Dylan Morris throwing one bad pass against UCLA is not the issue. Dylan Morris not being given the opportunity to throw those bad passes is the issue. Because the reality is you don't need to be in the situation where you're making one Hail Mary throw against UCLA if you run a good offense the entire time. And the secret to a good offense is throwing ball down the field. Do you know how many garbage fucking first downs on runs a 50-yard pass is worth? Like how? It takes so many four-yard carries to get to a 50-yard pass. right? Sean McGrew would have to run for three or four games to get to the completion that they had with Terrell Bynum.
1: It's just like continuously running. I like this visual. You know who has made this argument very persuasively in the past? Who is that? Brandon Staley.
2: About deep passing Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah. Wow. It takes re- a whole lot of four-yard runs to equal one fifty yard pass. We, res- like that. we <laughs> respect the
2: king, Brandon Staley. <laughs> oh, this podcast this
1: changes opinions a I'm lot. I'm telling
2: you, Brandon Staley's perspective is ne- has never been wrong. And the only person whose perspective is wrong is every other football coach ever. And uh, the reality is... Again, when- we're going to get to it. <laughs> when oh, you let your quarterback Dylan Morris can do that and that's the thing that I think is frustrating when you don't let your quarterback do these things and I swear to god I listened to for like five seconds Brock and Salk on the radio swear to god I listened to it I uh, don't ask me why it just happened right the lightning struck the car and it turned on Brock and Salk on the fucking radio and I heard Brock Heward of all people we have heard a person defending the, 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 the insignia or whatever, right? Like, there's never been a person who's more willing to defend whatever the team is wanting to do. The coaching staff, right? The logo. Brock Heward was there saying that the skill of your team on this Husky football team is on the edges. It is your receivers when they're healthy, clearly draw by them, and it's your cornerbacks. And you have to put these players in the best position to succeed. You know, if you need to load the box to stop the run and leave those cornerbacks on an island, do that because they can handle it. And you cannot stop the fucking run any other way.
1: I mean, I think two points here. Number one, I do think it was an open question whether Dylan Morris could successfully throw deep. And that's why I do think it was encouraging to see him do that in the second half on Friday.
2: He's never really been given the chance in his entire career. We just determined it. We (laughs) determined it. He's had
1: some chances. They haven't generally gone well. Number two, I don't know that just loading the box is the solution to run defense, because I think often when you see those big runs, it's because of the fact that you're getting past the second level, not it not having enough guys in the box. Or so w- whatever the they more- need
2: to do. I don't, I don't want to diagnose how they fix not being able to stop the run, because it's probably they need better players.
1: Well, unfortunately, one of those players they're not going to have is one. Ulofosio, who is out for the season, along with Richard Newton. Ulofosio with an arm injury, Newton with an ACL tear, both season-ending surgeries after they suffered those injuries against UCLA. In happier injury news, Alex Cook was able to travel back with the team after leaving Saturday's game on a stretcher. Remains in concussion protocol, but he's week-to-week and could potentially play this week. Uh, same with Jackson Kirkland, who missed this, the game on Friday. Uh,
2: Imagine happier Injury news being somebody was concussed in a game that they got paid $0 to play. I Obviously,
1: that's disappointing, but it just looked much worse is with the Daryl Taylor injury in the moment. So let's talk about Sam Heward. Because Sam Heward played in this game. Uh, Jimmy Lake said afterwards that they had planned this, even though it came a series earlier than it was planned, because Dylan Morris was bleeding after being having kind of his helmet hit his nose on the previous, se- on the first series for the Huskies. Uh, Heward came in, the Huskies ran on their first four plays, had an incomplete pass called back to offsides, then another run, a false start, and finally a Heward incomplete on third and sixth before punting. And I feel like one of the open questions here has been, hey, so what are the coaches seeing in practice with Sam Heward? And I feel like the way they called this series made it clear exactly you're putting saying.
2: too much faith in coaches who have proven themselves to be bad at coaching. like i'm I'm not willing to accept the process of this coaching staff because I don't think it's good. And just saying that the coaches aren't seeing something doesn't means nothing to me, right? Coaches who are inexperienced who've never seen success whatsoever as an offensive coordinator or a head coach for that matter, aren't seeing it. And they put Sam Heward in a really I think bad position. I think seen quarterbacks before. How about you have a running back who averaged 2.5 yards per carry and ran the ball 17 times. Kamari Pleasant, who's consistently been a better running back than Sean McGrew in every way has gotten way fewer carries. Like again, we, there's no way in college football that you should have a running back averaging that low of a yards per carry. I mean, Sean McGrew's
1: EPA per play is actually better than Kamari Pleasant's, but I think that's largely due to wildcat plays and then Kamari Pleasant's fumble. So I do agree I'd like to see a larger share of the offense You can going recognize for, plus. For,
2: for college and NFL any at any point averaging that few of the yards per carry I would assume if we are looking at DVOA or advanced statistics if we had access to them for college it would also be bad like I mean,
1: we do have access to the API I haven't looked at it for the Arizona game specifically but yes I agree that McGree's EPA on Friday was
2: probably not good I it's they're not putting these players in the position to succeed Dylan Morris, Sam Heward, whatever, like what you're describing with Sam Heward, it's one series and that's not your sample size right now that you're taking too much from is one series. I'm not saying that I think Sam Heward is a better quarterback than Dylan Morris at this point. I think Dylan Morris is probably a better quarterback than Sam Heward is. I'm saying that I would like to see either of them put in a better situation by the coaching staff and in the end, ultimately, their backs were against their wall. I'm sure their job security was against the wall here on Friday night. Like, again, I don't I don't think there's almost anything that could be done to make Jimmy Lake lose his job this year on the field, at the very least. But it would have looked quite bad, this loss. And in that moment, they spread it out, and they let Dylan Morris throw the ball. And by throwing the ball, they were successful. And again, that 50-yard completion equaled a lot of endless Sean McGrew two-and-a-half-yard runs. Indeed it did. Right? Like, am I wrong about this? No. No, you're not You're not wrong about this. So uh, let's keep trying to do that. Because even when it's unsuccessful, you know, I, maybe this is too much of a football guy perspective. Being able to throw—just throw—in fact, this is the exact opposite— Because football guys will say, you have to run the ball no matter what. And I'm going to say, you have to throw the ball deep whether you're successful or not. Because if you don't, then you don't have to defend it. Throwing the ball deep, if you miss it one time, it's a huge deal. Right? You mean if you hit it one one time? No, from the defense's perspective. Yeah. yeah. If they they give up one 50-yard completion, that is a huge deal. If they give up one 10-yard run, they don't really care. It's not that big of a deal. Right. As far as transferring to points on the board, you have to throw the ball deep to open up the rest of offense. And that's the problem with both of these teams that we've seen is they're not doing enough of this football starts from the depth down to the small amounts. And fundamentally, that is how the sport is most successfully played is by you stretch to open up the short field. And football teams, if you have antiquated coaches, if you have coaches who don't understand how football works, think of it the exact opposite way.
1: I was going to say, speaking of antiquated coaches, but Stanford actually is letting it fly this year. Uh, So Saturday, the Huskies headed to a house of horrors at Stanford Stadium. Their last win there came in November 2007 during Jim Barba's first year as head coach. The six-game losing streak for the Huskies, now in its fourth presidential term. Oh, God. <laughs> it's been a weird season for Stanford, which got a 42-28 win at then number 14 USC in week two, which looks a lot less impressive now with the Trojans spiraling after Clay Hilton's dismissal following that game. They upset then number three Oregon 31-24 at home on October 2nd, only to lose their next two games at Arizona State and Washington State prior to the bye Leaving Cardinal at three and four and two and three in Pac-12 play. And that's despite the fact that they're number four in EPA per pass attempt, uh, but partially because they're at the bottom of the Pac-12 along with UW in EPA per rush attempt. Wow. Yes, it, there are other teams are as poor as UW rushing. No, just for it Stanford. Stanford, yeah, be I know. Team. I know. Uh, Jack West started their opening loss versus Kansas State at quarterback before Tanner McKee took over. He's number one. In the Pac-12, in total passing EPA, EPA completing sixty-five percent of his passes for eight yards per attempt, with just three interceptions in the six games he started. Uh, typical big receiving threats for Stanford. That is one consistent point for the Cardinal. Unlike their running game this year, six foot six tight end Benjamin Urasek leads the team in his seventh in the Pac twelve in receiving EPA, while six foot four wide receiver Bryson Tremaine has a team high five touchdowns, and six foot three Elijah Higgins has four. They've rotated Austin Jones and Nathaniel Pete at running back with hit and miss results. They've been held under eighty yards rushing in all four losses this season. Wow does not bode well for the Huskies defense. The Cardinal defense conversely can't stop the run. They allow the highest opponent EPA or per rush in the pac 12, just ahead of the Huskies and also allowing more yards per carry of 5.2 to the Huskies 4.9. The difference is while Stanford is in the middle of the back and pass defense, UW now far in a way the best in the pac 12 in opponent passing EPA per, per play. So, I, I look at all that, and I fear that Stanford is going to be able to run the ball against this Huskies rush defense, and then they're also going to throw the ball successfully, despite how good the UW pass secondary is. And Because it's Stanford?
2: I, why why do you think that? Because they've
1: thrown the ball well over the course of the season. Okay. I don't think UW, has, UW hasn't played a quarterback this good over the course of the year. So I don't think UW going to get a lot of stops, and I don't think they're good enough offensively to take advantage of Stanford's inability to stop the run.
2: Fair enough. I, I you just, you really don't know. I, I don't see how you could go into this game, having any faith in this team. And <laughs> I, I think that's the hardest bit of it. Like they were down 13, nothing to the worst team in the pack. 12 at halftime last week, they managed to recover, but it was because of a pretty fluky interception and then hitting a couple of deep passes, which, again, I think we should always be throwing, but you know that the percentage chances of hitting those are still quite low.
1: Uh, Latule Lasanoa, for the record, with that
2: interception. It sounds like it's a very strange Stanford team from the <laughs> yes. Stanford teams that we've known before. And
1: This is not the David Shaw, Jim Harbaugh line that we uh, It is. We it is
2: weakness on weakness and strength on strength to a certain extent. Yep. And on the defensive side of the football, I have a lot of faith in this Husky secondary.
1: I mean, Kyler Gordon and Trent McDuffie are playing at an extremely high level.
2: Being able to stop the run is a bigger question, but can they do enough to stop the run to slow down Stanford here and force them to pass, put them into maybe slightly worse situations for, uh, what the Huskies want them to do. Ultimately, I I just don't think that it really matters what Stanford's offense does. They're probably going to score what they're going to score. And it is, can this Husky offense move the ball? Yeah, that's probably true. And what are they going to look like? You know, like that is, that's it. They'll The Husky defense will give up 21 points in this game. And can the offense score more? I have no idea if that's the case. I, I couldn't even really venture to guess with this team because it's been so drastically different each week and how bad, how bad they've been running the ball has been pretty shocking. It seems like there may be some signs of life at various times with this offensive play calling. Will we see that carry over? Maybe probably, but if we could get a combination of deep passes and motion runs, that's a fucking offense there. And I I don't think uh, I don't know if we're we're quite there, but I know they have the talent to do it. I say thirty five percent chances of victory. <sighs> I think it's more like forty seven.
1: Forty seven. <laughs> it's a very odd every week that you're like talking. We need to fire the coach.
2: Eighty five percent chance of victory. Wait, UW is a more talented team than Stanford is. I mean,
1: I don't think the recruiting difference is that dramatic,
2: but they are a. More Tanner McKee was
1: a higher-rated quarterback than Dylan Morris was, I think.
2: And I think the way that these strengths play, I'm, I'm just, I'm being very optimistic here about how this will play out. Look, <laughs> clearly you are. I, I've seen a lot of, again, a lot of horrors. I know it's the night before Halloween, right? It's all Hollows Eve. Uh, oh. I guess Halloween is actually all Hall's Eve, isn't it right? Uh, it is. It's all Hall's Eve, Eve.
1: <laughs> we've seen the Ghost of Stanford
2: past, but for some reason, I feel good about this one. I feel should... I feel good about how these strengths and weaknesses play against each other, and that every week, I keep thinking, maybe they figured something out here a little bit on offense. It's I I, hope that, I hope weirdly left that game. I weirdly really left that game feeling slightly positive on UW. What's well,
1: time for our weekly Jake Hayner update.
2: There we go. This is my, this is my favorite part of the podcast. Jake Hayner with
1: 26 of 38 for 256 oh. yards and two touchdowns in Saturday's thrilling 34 32 win over Nevada, which wasn't decided until a failed Wolfpack two point attempt with two seconds remaining in regulation.
2: You give me Jake Haner in that and Se- that Husky secondary.
1: <laughs> uh, let's wrap up with the Seattle Seahawks who dropped to 2 and 5 with Monday Night's 13-10 lo- loss to the New Orleans Saints.
2: Okay, so I just want to say something here. Okay. And it was something that I was thinking about well, being at this game on Monday night. And it is, I know Halloween's ahead of us, but the next holiday after that is Thanksgiving. And I think we really have to be thinking about how thankful we should be for Russell Wilson. We've imagined this scenario for years of what it would look like if Russell Wilson was injured and was able, was unable to play. And it is... Honestly, like, this is no offense to Geno Smith. Geno Smith is doing a valiant job as a backup quarterback. But it is a nightmare scenario for this team not having Russell Wilson and as a fan watching these games. And I think about their teams. You know, like, Geno Smith, if you were to rank all starting quarterbacks right now, is he the 20th best starting quarterback? Like, they're worse in this moment. They're worse starting quarterbacks in the NFL than Geno Smith.
1: I mean, I probably would say closer to 25th, but yeah.
2: And there are teams who've gone literally decades without quarterbacks that were nowhere near as good as Russell Wilson. I can think of one of them. So if you are a person who is curious what it would be like when Russ was, there were rumors of Russ being traded in the past, last last offseason. If you're a person who was curious what it would look like without Russell Wilson, let me just answer. We've seen these rookie quarterbacks this year. We see what it looks like the grass is always worse without russell wilson and the grass is
1: the, the grass not only is less green the grass is fucking dead the grass died
2: with this team but even the alternate options i think that are out there there is there's is nobody in the world who could reasonably be the quarterback of the seattle seahawks who is better than russell wilson who they could feasibly acquire right <laughs> Since that Tom Brady scenario we discussed last week is off the table. And this to me is, you know, I, I think when Russ got hurt, I describe myself, I don't know if this is on the podcast or offline, as basically a Russell Wilson fan, not even a Seahawks fan. And it's because a player like Russell Wilson comes around literally once in a generation. You know, like, once in our lifetimes, we may never see a quarterback anywhere near as good. I was telling Chris, like, I fucking love Matt Hasselbeck. Matt Hasselbeck is the first ever good quarterback we got to see play. Wow, and the disrespect to John Kidna. But John Kidna is, is he's yeah, in his know. class with Geno Smith, right? He's in that territory. John Kidna was a little better. He was more of, like, a Ryan Fitzpatrick, I feel like. But having a player like that is the greatest thing that you could have in all of sports, having yeah. a player like Russell Wilson, because like I could have gone to this cracking game today and Tanev could have been hurt. It would have been equally enjoyable and their chances of winning probably would have been about the same. You could go to a baseball game, right? And Mitch Haniger could be injured, right? Or a different starter than the number one starter could be pitching. You have basically an equal chance of winning going into a game like this against the Saints, with Geno Smith as your starting quarterback and not Russell Wilson, changes the excitement, it changes the tenor, and it changes the win probability of this game. And that to me is why you cannot waste this opportunity that you have having a quarterback like Russell Wilson still in his prime with a coach like Pete Carroll. And wow, we got there at the end. What he did in that game, which is ultimately. Whatever he does with Geno Smith as a starting quarterback, it's it just doesn't really matter. Like, how you want to approach it is fine. When Russell Wilson is the starting quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks, you cannot run the offense that they ran in this game. And you, it, is, it is offensive to Russell Wilson, to sports in the city of Seattle, to the idea of quarterback play, to pair that coach with that quarterback. And that happened so successfully for two years it was amazing. And the fact that we only got oh, two two years, I'm saying two extraordinarily successful years with the Seahawks. Four
1: extraordinarily successful years.
2: Pete's trash defense ruined some of those years, but
1: that, no, that no, we, it did not. Camp Chancellor's holdout ruined one of those years.
2: Two games
1: that we, we didn't <laughs> yeah, get, yeah, two games it, that they lost that, that were the could, difference between them playing on the road in the second round or
2: not. It could have been even better, and it still can get better if there is a change at the coaching position, because the reality is under Pete Carroll, nothing is going to change no matter who the coordinator is, no matter what the, what the rest of the offense looks like, nothing is going to change under Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll has one mode of playing football and his mode of playing football is not how football is played to win in the year 2021. The fact that this team is two and five is on Pete Carroll. It's not on anybody else. Honestly, like Russell Wilson got them to even two and five. I don't know if talent wise, they're that good of a team and we cannot go another season with Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson. And I think both parties see that this is the case. I, I don't know that both parties see that this is the case. I I can I tell you that, that one part party I think sees that it's the case.
1: One party did last offseason. We'll see whether Russell Wilson can rationalize this season as just lost due to injury, and we'll never know what would have been if I had stayed healthy. I I think just to take your first point, we have never taken Russell Wilson for granted because of the fact that we've seen the darkness that was Seahawks quarterback play a lot of the time before Russell Wilson, I- but.
2: Matt has, love that. Oh, not, we've not been darkness. honestly Seahawks fans have been pretty blessed in the, in the, in the, the Ops, Seahawks fans who
1: started came on the bandwagon when Matt back with a quarterback
2: has been pretty blessed. The
1: rest of us are still making up for the 1990s. Cause it was, it was really bad for a long stretch of time there. <laughs> uh, and so I, I would not say we've taken Russell Wilson for granted, but yes, I agree that it's that seeing this offense without him is even more reason to be thankful. Number two, I, I want to attempt a mild defensive Pete Carroll here that a lot of people are saying, well, this is what the Seahawks would be like without Russell Wilson. And I don't think that's quite fair because if Russell Wilson wasn't on the roster at all, you'd have $30 million in cap space to spend on your defense at quarterback, wherever else. How much
2: would they pay outwards? How many run-stuffing defensive linemen would they have? Hey, look, Outwood's aside from no, the penalty no, no, on the field that goal,
1: that seemed worth a lot Let me more. just say,
2: you take that $30 million from Russ off the field, they're going to stop the run. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm just saying, it's not quite fair. They it gets back to Le'Veon Bell $10 million a year. Whoa, oh, dear. It gets back to my Sue Bird theory, Sue Bird backup theory of it doesn't matter. You shouldn't invest a lot in Sue Bird's backup because this team is screwed if Sue Bird gets hurt anyway. <sighs> And that's, I think, what we're seeing with Russell Wilson. Like, I don't think that Geno Smith is a bad backup to Russell Wilson. It's just there's nobody you're going to put in the lineup who's going to be Russell Wilson. That's That guy is one of one. I mean, I am starting to wonder whether Cam Newton might have made sense at this point. I think that's the question that's fair to ask in the wake of Geno Smith's performance on Monday. But number three, I guess my number three point is, if Pete Carroll's even lost Mina Kimes, I... I feel like there's no coming back from this with Seahawks Twitter.
2: It's mean it. Well, I hate to break this to you. Seahawks Twitter, unfortunately does not make the decisions about the sort of thing.
1: I'm not uh, saying that they do. I'm just saying there's no coming back from this one.
2: Has Pete lost Mina Kimes? He has. Yeah. Was Mina a Pete Stan?
1: I don't know if I would say that she was a Pete Stan, but I, I think that, you know, she's hesitant to, make that rational decoration and she did it on on first take today so that's a pretty big one
2: that pete needs to go yeah there there are a lot of people who have assigned responsibility to russell wilson over the years for things that have gone wrong and ultimately the thing that went wrong was pete carroll and his coaching and i i still think that is true for last season i think pete completely derailed the best offense in the nfl because of a handful of turnovers. I don't buy that it was too high safeties or anything. I Pete, Pete went out of his way to convince people that that's what happened. Chiefs
1: looked kind of figured out on Sunday. I'm just saying. Just saying. I'm There's just no, saying.
2: There is literally no figuring out. I'm just offense. saying. First just off, saying. the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl this year. Second off, <laughs> it's so would you, stupid. It would, is you just, care, would you care to wager on that? On the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl? I need odds on this. <laughs> when you said they're going to win the super bowl that sounded like a 100% odds to me The Chiefs will be fine there's no figuring out good offense that's the point of good offense where do you think the Chiefs rank in offensive DVOA? They're not just number 2 anymore I guarantee you that Mr. the Chiefs have been figured out oh,
1: god I'm not saying they're figured out I'm just saying they're
2: not what they have been in past years Wow they are all the way down to number five. Well, that's a lot worse than second. Figured out. I'm just telling you, there's so many teams. Look, they should be thankful for Pat Mahomes because there are so many other teams that are worse than them. If they're figured out, Obviously try, they should be try, try out being the Mahomes. fucking Texans. Try having Zach Wilson, of all people, get injured. Even your already terrible quarterback gets injured. Like, <laughs> I'm confused. Were we talking about the Texans or the Jets? <laughs> no, no, I, no, I'm saying I was talking at the Jets also like, okay, the, but the, I mean, also have try having Tyrod Taylor get injured. I the f- point is there's so many worst case scenarios at quarterback. The worst case scenario at coach is not actually that different. I think we've established pretty well that there are maybe five <laughs> good coaches of football on earth and the chance of them hiring one of the good ones is not that high. The chances of them hiring somebody who's maybe equally the same is probably pretty great. And I don't disagree with this argument in general, but have I introduced you to Adam Gase? The quarterback ruiner? <laughs> I think there's a good chance that they would the Seahawks, if Pete Carroll moved on, they would not hire Adam Gase. And the most important thing is coaches are expendable. Quarterbacks are not. You cannot go out and find another quarterback who's as good as Russell Wilson. They do not exist. You could have the first pick in the draft. And what do you think the chances are that Trevor Lawrence ever in his entire career is as good as Russell Wilson has been in his peak?
1: Twenty percent, twenty. I don't know. Maybe it's lower based on this season. Tough to say. He may be being held by his back by his head coach as well. I. I mean, I think this has been a really rough twenty-four months for the idea that coaches are more important than quarterbacks. When you look at the divorce of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady in New England, it seems pretty clear who came out better in that one. Who was more important to that particular partnership? Yeah. No, I think. I mean, I think. But. This is only relevant if Russell Wilson is adamant that he can't play for Pete Carroll anymore. So, I mean, we'll see about that at the end of the season.
2: Ultimately, the point is, having Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll is still not that great of a marriage. Because one party is not holding up their end of the agreement, and that's Uh, Pete Carroll.
1: one One of them is a lot more sickness, and one of them is a lot more health. The thing that I don't understand about the Seahawks is why their defense only seems to play well when their offense plays poorly. If you look at it across the league over the last couple of seasons, there's generally no correlation whatsoever between a team's points scored and their points allowed in a given game. It's completely random. The Seahawks are an exception to this, where the more points they score, on average, the more points they allow. It's the third highest correlation between those two since the start of 2020 behind Cleveland and Minnesota which makes sense because Mike Zimmer only allows them to play the good offense when the defense is playing poorly. And I think Pete Carroll is doing
2: something similar. Yes. I totally agree. Pete Pete Carroll thinks every game he's going to is a fucking punt party. And that's the issue. (laughs) Not every game though. When the defense gives up a lot of points, it's not necessarily a punt party. But Pete Carroll assumes that every game he is playing in that if they score a touchdown, he can just batten down the hatches. And that's what that's what I feel like we see over and over and over again is Pete Carroll thinks he's playing a different game than everybody else is playing. I mean, you know. And they mentioned... don't, if you, if you miss a few field goals, like the margin for error is very slim when you're playing in a punt party like Pete Carroll thinks he's playing in.
1: He mentioned on the Salk show on Tuesday on his appearance that like we were plus one on turnovers and. Historically that's not going to be a game you lose. And it's like, well, historically might not matter the same way. The games in nineteen eighty seven might not be as relevant in 2021 with the rules and the offense being what it is now.
2: Historically, who gives a fuck? Also, like I I don't it doesn't matter to me that they won they were plus one in the turnover margin. They lost the game and it wasn't ultimately that close. Like well, I think he definitely thinks it
1: was that close. And I mean, it was that close on the scoreboard.
2: He was outplayed in this game and outcoached in this game. And the reality is they don't go into every drive thinking that it's urgent for them to score a touchdown. And that it is the most important thing to do in football is go into a drive and say, we need to score a touchdown on this play or on on this drive. And that's not how Pete Carroll approaches football. And not approaching football in that way means that you're not approaching football the way it's played in 2021. Like, I don't, you can see the drives. You can see what's happening when they play it. He went on that third quarter, and I'm sorry, like, we're talking about Pete Carroll. Apologies to Shane Waldron that your name is not invoked. You don't fucking matter here because the reality is this is I all Pete. It is all Pete Carroll's offense. Every single year, all of a sudden the offense, all of the same trends keep happening, whether it's Daryl Bevel or it's Brian shot what is Shane Waldron? We know who's in charge here. The offensive coordinator is a vessel for Pete Carroll's garbage perspectives on offense. And he tried for a little while to give these people is, am I wrong? You're laughing. He tries. He tries. He wants I'm mostly so badly. With the, term,
1: the term garbage perspective on offense.
2: He wants so badly to give these people agency, and he wants a person who thinks like Pete Carroll and who could run the ball up the gut in an amazing way. Like
1: You're he, saying Pete Carroll needs to clone Pete Carroll and have that Pete Carroll focus on offense?
2: I'm sure in his world, he would be very happy if that was the case. But the problem is that would be a shitty offensive coordinator.
1: Like, oh, I mean, we learned in multiplicity with Michael Keaton that eventually you're going to get some, you know, you're, the clone of a clone is not all, as all of, of, of a sudden line. you're
2: going to get some Steve Belichick's. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Is that his name? Yes. <laughs> uh, it's just it's not good offense like it is fundamentally bad offense. And if you want to talk about the data or whatever suggests this, the data suggests, right, your turnover margin. Like, you're talking about pretty basic shit that we're talking about here. Turnover margin. You could dig a little bit deeper that. and say if the amount that they're running on first down, that they're telegraphing that their, their plays, running up the middle. There were two successful, uh, uh, maybe three successful run plays in this entire game. One was a run to fucking Gerald Everett, which worked. It worked. The run to children. And they didn't go back to it. Was it Swain who had the other end around that worked? Yes. And then the one Travis Homer run on third and long that set up the beautiful Miss Fuel goal. Like <laughs> that is it is you know that Shane Waldron's playbook is full of plays like this, and ultimately what they do is they run the ball up the gut with Alex Collins over and over and over again. When you're sneaking no, on third that's and not one, true
1: sometimes they run it up the gut with Rashad Penny.
2: Fair enough. When but when you're sneaking on third and one Geno Smith from at like the opponent's 30 like you're not doing it right. I'm sorry, but you I saw that and I was like this is the predecessor to a punt. That is what this offense is. When they got the turnover, when they recovered this the Saints fumble. And then everybody in that building, we're talking 75,000 people in that building, were expecting play action to the end zone. And Pete Carroll was the one person in the entire building who was like, now is when we start running. Let's do that same shit over and over again. It didn't work before. Let's do it more. Let's set up a field goal. And when you're trying to set up field goals, it does not work. Geno Smith, I hate to break it to you, can throw the ball deep like Dylan Morris can. There was a ball that went through Tyler Lockett's hands. A Beautiful pass by Geno Smith. I think I think he's a little bit slow in his reads and his decision-making isn't phenomenal. But if you give Geno Smith the time and the ability to throw the ball to the outside, he can make those throws. He proved it and they don't let him do that. And it's bad offense. It's the exact same as Husky football. When you look at these numbers on this rushing attack for the Seahawks, they are embarrassing numbers and you don't need to do it. Should we talk about the Jaguars? No. <laughs> you just want to end the pod here. Do you want to talk about the Jaguars? It doesn't matter. We don't even. We have nothing.
1: Uh, Rashad Penny had two successful carries. The there were three successful positive EPA carries in this game. One was by Alex Collins that just ran out the clock in the first half. Two were Rashad Penny plays that involved unnecessary roughness penalties against Marcus Latimore. <laughs>
2: The penalties, really. And they didn't even capitalize on those penalties. Six carries for nine yards for Ashad Penny. 16 for 35 for Alex Collins. Like, that is the point where you, when you're running that badly, you're not making it an easier third down. No, of course not. You're not doing anything. They are, they are, this is the same shit we've done. God, was it, it was when they were like, we had a really great, this was like four years ago. They're like, we had a really great strategy. We're going to run it at Aaron Donald. We can't, We figured it out. We're going to run it at Aaron Donald. That's when the runs really open up. That's uh, what they were doing. It was actually game. at JWN Clowney. It was like the Clowney. A, yeah, the best, at the time, one of the best
0: uh,
2: run defense linemen. Yeah, they were going to run it at Clowney. It was genius stuff that they'd figured out. In this game, they're like, you know what? The Saints are really good at stopping the run. But I think we should run it at them more because of that. Like, if you were putting together a game plan, if you saw that Gerald Everett run, you'd be like, wow, maybe we should do more of this. And that's not their outlook on the game.
1: So the Jaguars got their first win under Urban Meyer two weeks ago in London, snapping a 20-game losing streak that dated back to the opening week of 2020. The second consecutive game, the Seahawks face an opponent coming off a bye this time on a short week themselves. Jay Wars coming number 29 in DVOA behind the O 7 Lions, but ahead of the 3-3 Falcons. They're 24th in offense, but dead last in defensive DVOA. Number one pick Trevor Lawrence, 30th in the EPA, EPA plus CPOE composite from Ben Baldwin, ahead of three other rookies, Davis Mills, Justin Fields, and Zach Wilson, Lawrence has completed 60% of his passes with eight interceptions, but the Jags are number two in rushing DVOA with James Robinson getting the bulk of the workload after first-round pick Travis Etienne was lost to a season-ending with his Franck injury. Robinson tops all running backs in Football Outsiders DR, volume metric. The Jags defense is forced to just two turnovers. Everyone else in the NFL has at least four. They are 31st in both sack rate in opponent pass yards per attempt. So if there's ever a defense that Geno Smith is going to succeed against, it is this one.
2: If he gets the chance. I I think they'll be a little more aggressive in this one. Why?
1: Because Marcus Lattimore is not walking through that door.
2: Okay. It's too much faith. I mean, there's I nothing mean the that they've done that suggests that you should have faith. That you should even expect that they have game planned for these games. Okay, I think they've game planned for these games. Yeah, they game plan to run the ball up the middle every fucking play. Like how how do you approach that Saints game and end up with that as the game plan? There's nothing that you could have seen that would suggest that was going to be the the game plan, right? It's like I mean, it's the like the Huskies in the, the first Saints half; they were playing at least good. Oh, the Saints have a very good defense.
1: defense. I mean, it's a very different defense that they're facing on Sunday.
2: They saw the number two run defense in the NFL, and they said to themselves, "We're going to run it up the gut against this team. They'll be they will be more successful doing that stupid thing against the Jaguars." That I will give you. Are they going to score points this game? Probably like, can they get to 21 with Gino Smith against the Jaguars? I think that they probably will. There's a very I good don't chance. Know that I
1: think the Jaguars can score 21 points.
2: There is a very good chance that they will win this game because the Jaguars are a very bad team,
1: but it's in question. No, it is not a sure thing. People were penciling this, like even with Russell Wilson at the lineup, like this is the one we, we for sure are going to win. Like,
2: no, no, that's not the case. This is a legitimate ass game. I do think. Okay, so can can we talk about something slightly more positive? Sure. I the mean, de-
1: you said this is going to be the rationalization cast, and it has not been at all.
2: It's. I'm for, maybe I'm predicting a peep firing in the next week. <laughs> oh. Okay. The. The defense. Yeah, I mean, to my point,
1: the question is, can the defense play as well when the offense does play successfully? Or is it only capable of playing well when the def- offense is
2: bad? Since we've seen that they've moved to a, quite a bit more Ryan Neal, Trey Brown, Sidney Jones, Ugo Amadi, unfortunately a player with the injury.
1: but Yeah, season-ending patella fracture.
2: The Trey Brown, DJ Reed as the outside corners looks like a pretty nice tandem right now. I mean, since Trey Brown has come back from injury, he's he's definitely looked like the best cornerback we've seen opposite DJ Reed all year.
1: I mean, I feel like we're going to get a lot more information about this when they face a top-tier quarterback in two <laughs> weeks in Aaron Rodgers. We're not going to get a lot more information about that this week against Trevor Lawrence.
2: Probably not. It was interesting. I, You know, Jameis is not the most accurate quarterback. He was pretty bad in that game, though. James was surprisingly bad in that game, and there were some balls that the defense was not defensing that he just straight up missed. So yeah, there was a little bit of pass rush. They made James a little bit uncomfortable. They played pretty well.
1: Got a couple of sacks without Daryl Taylor, who didn't play in this one. Hopefully, we'll be back this weekend.
2: So, I I think there's some there's some stuff to be positive about if they can pull off a victory against the Jags. Which I think that they will. I'm going to do chance of victory, and then I want to talk about the rest of the season. Let's do 73% chance.
1: 65%.
2: All right. Can I get to the rationalization cast? Oh, there you go. The good news is this is probably going to be the last start for Geno Smith.
1: I don't know if I would go so far as to say probably. This is going to hopefully
2: be the last start. I think I think there's a very good chance we've seen what things look like with Geno Smith as a starting quarterback. We know that we don't want that to be the case. The schedule is very difficult, right? When Russ is hypothetically coming back past the at bye Green week. Bay, Arizona, in the next two weeks, things ultimately don't look that bad beyond those two games. Just and- looking at the schedule.
1: At Washington football team, San Francisco, at Houston, at LA Rams, Chicago, Detroit before at I, Arizona in the finale.
2: That is That is five of six with if Russ is playing, the Seahawks will probably be favored. I mean, I think
1: there's a minimum of three losses in there, is I guess what I would tell you. I think the best case scenario at this point is nine and eight.
2: I think 9-8 could be good enough for the playoffs. If you can pair a competent defense and a Russell Wilson offense, that is a team that could make some moves in the playoffs. I I would not... Look, making the playoffs is ultimately the only goal. There's no first-round pick. There's nothing else to be playing for here.
1: Yes. Like, tanking to improve your second-round pick is not worth it.
2: So, the only good thing to tank for is to get Pete fired. But... (laughs) You know, we'll see. Maybe, maybe just natural outcomes are going to lead to that. Like maybe just a bad football play will lead to that without tanking. Uh, ultimately, though, the schedule has has aside from the NFC West teams that they have coming up and the Packers doesn't look that scary. And I'm telling you right now, if they can beat this Jags team, you get to three and five just running through it. Possibility maybe you split with the Packers and the Cardinals. I think that's on the optimistic side. Let's just, let's give them that. You're four and six. Washington's five and six. Niners are six and six. Texans, you're over 500. Okay. Then Rams would be, what, six and six? Let's say that's a loss. Hosting the Bears, hosting the Lions. Ooh, that's seven and seven at that point. Okay, so hosting the Bears, hosting the Lions. Potentially nine and seven at that point.
1: Going into week seventeen at Arizona.
2: Which who even knows? Like they could have the number one seed possibly locked up. It Can this possible. team get to ten and seven? Is that impossible if Russ is healthy? It's not impossible. There's your rationalization cast right there. And the look, all of these losses are a huge deal. And the fact that they've lost to two teams that they almost certainly will be competing for for the last playoff spot in the Vikings and the Saints. Very, very bad news. But can the Seahawks get back in the mix with a healthy Russ and a defense that looks a little bit more competent? We might see the team that we thought we would see this year. And I'm not giving up on the season yet.
1: (laughs) Not giving up on the season. That's the rationalization after seven weeks I, without a first-round pick.
2: Well, I mean, they've played. Also, if we're going to do a little bit more rationalization, do we? Must we? You talk about DVOA? Like, look where this team ranks in DVOA. It's extraordinarily skewed. It doesn't seem right that the Seahawks could be the 10th best team in the NFL. But that's where they're sitting. I mean, they were 2-2. Two and two when Russ got injured, like things were not looking that bad and the Russ injury happens and it kind of derails everything. But ultimately they lost by three points to the Steelers by, I don't remember what the Niners or what the Rams final ended up being, but they lost by three points to the Steelers, three points to the Saints. Those are two games that with Russ, they probably would have won.
1: I mean, with that DBOA they there's still 17% playoff odds. 17 what? 17%.
2: To make the playoffs? Yes. Well, they've got to win the games. There's a long run ahead of them, but I I would not write this team off yet in the same way that the Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> in the same way that, that the Chiefs yeah. are...
1: would we'll would take that action.
2: Wait, where do the Chiefs rank in DVOA? Wow, 18th. That's actually kind of wild how low they are. Yeah, it
1: doesn't help when
2: you have the worst defense. <laughs> I don't think they do have the worst. I think they have the second worst defense. Because the well, worst defense belongs to... Oh, that's the Texans. I thought it was the Jags. Uh, no, the no, no, were... they have the worst oh, yeah, defense. Oh, yes, they do have the worst defense, yes.
1: Yeah, they, they have the worst defense ever. So the worst I defense belongs
2: true. to... you team will be seeing this weekend, Geno Smith. Jacksonville Jaguars will be up late watching Stanford waking up early to watch the Seahawks game. I don't know if I will live to see November.
1: I don't know how early you'll be waking up to watch the 105 PM game against the Jaguars. But on that note,
2: happy Halloween.
1: Thanks for listening.